We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. Hello and welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. This is me, Lean from ArsenalVision.co.uk. In today's show, Elliot, Paul and Tim will be discussing the 2-2 draw away at Manchester City. Firstly, I thought it was a really good game. Really entertaining game. Um, didn't start so well. We got back into the game and we responded well when we went behind. Not the best defending in the world. Personally, I would have started Francis Coquelin in the team uh, in that game. But um, we didn't do so. We had chances to win the game, but we could have lost it as well. So, draw is probably a fair result. Yeah, so let me hand you over to the guys. Enjoy the podcast. And back for the final game, Aston Villa at home, which ends our season. So, um, enjoy the podcast and back after that one. If you like narrative, then you'll love the Arsenal match we're going to be discussing for you. It's got injuries, horrifying defending, comeback goals, and a fist pump for the top four trophy. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. We're going to be discussing all of that, the injuries, the goals, the calamitous car crash defending, and the fist pumping our way to another top four trophy with two gentlemen you will be used to hearing from by now. One of them is the man who has been to every away match for 14 consecutive seasons. He has uh, all the scars to prove it. It is Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Stilberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Hello there, indeed. And the man who has not been any of the away matches for the past 14 consecutive seasons uh, and has all of the uh, uh, bed sores to prove it. His name is Paul. You can find him on Twitter at Pause My Pants. Hello, Pause. Woohoo! Woohoo, indeed. It is a woohoo. It is a woohoo. It is a 2 2. It is just the most. Arsenal 
game that Arsenal could possibly participate in. We've lost a player to seemingly very serious injury. We celebrated a draw that probably secures a top four place. We defended like we'd never defended before, literally. <laughs> um, it was everything you associate with Arsenal. Uh, and and so let's start, Paul, with what you thought of Frankenstein's monster. Uh, sorry, I mean the starting 11. <laughs> Um, so let me just concur with it being the most Arsenal of games because, like, both teams played like Arsenal. Uh, I think <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> I think City did a better impersonation of Arsenal than yeah, Arsenal has done all season. They didn't lose anyone to injury. Uh, that's true. But anyway, yeah. What do you think of Frankenstein's monster? Um, so I didn't like the midfield lineup. Uh, I think Tim had said, and we all agreed that uh, it was likely Cock would start. Uh, and I can see why we thought that was a good idea. Um, interestingly, of course, Awobi is still starting. Uh, Welbeck wasn't the centre forward. Very interesting, that. Um, so uh, the problem was we didn't really see it develop because, well... A, City started like an absolute train, so, you know, fair fair props to them. I don't know if it was the emotionality of, that's a made-up word, of uh, Pellegrini's last game at the Etihad. I'd love to get uh, Tim's view on that when, when he eventually gets a word in edgeways. Um, or whether it was the specter of United breathing down their neck for the top four spot, which seemed to come to pass. Uh, it looks like they're now rated as 50-50 between the two clubs as to who's going to get that top four spot. But they, I mean, they certainly started like a train. They were all over us. They were incredibly energetic. So we didn't really see the Welbeck on the wing, Giroud at striker as the game played out. So I'm not, I'm not sure I understand the manager's thinking on that because as soon as we lost Welbeck, we lost our thread in behind. Um, and we lost that pretty much for the whole game, and that impacted everything. Basically, we found it hard to play out of midfield. Our our passing was sloppy. We made a lot of mistakes all over the park. It put a lot of pressure on us, combined with, uh, and maybe because of the energy they brought. So I didn't really like this starting eleven. It didn't function very well, but then... Maybe we were just in a little bit of end-of-season funk where we had less to play for than them because we feel we've got our top four sewn up. And we did our best, but we didn't really start uh, like a train, let alone a bicycle <laughs> or a scooter. So, yeah. So I didn't like it. the main For me, the main decision was the midfield pairing. Uh, Ramsey Alneni versus the Fernando Nino twins. Uh, <laughs> I think I think we got our ass handed to ourselves in midfield, and I counted six, seven times, especially at, you know, when you added Jack to it, six seven times that City ran literally ran box to box or something close to it through our midfield. One of which was the Kevin De Bruyne goal. Another was Fernandinho made a sloppy pass at the e- at the end. In Hinaccio ran straight through our midfield. That that was that classic chance where he had uh, Navas to his right, and the commentators said he should have passed to him, but obviously he shouldn't because Navas is never going to score. But he had um, <laughs> he had uh, Aguero to his left. Um, 
But uh, the other thing I'd say is, uh, I didn't get this sense on Twitter, it was a cracking game. It wasn't a particularly high-quality game. And those city games are always cracking games. So I have to say, I still enjoyed the snot out of it with the little luxury that I thought we would get a result for whatever reason, because we always seem to do well against City. Yeah, I think this is only a cracking game for the neutral, much the way Chelsea and Spurs game last week was a cracking game. There wasn't a lot of quality. I mean, some of the goals were quality, but there wasn't a lot of quality. I mean, we we were a pretty atrocious 77% pass success, but City bested us at 70%. Aaron Ramsey completed 69% of his passes from midfield, which is really poor to go with his two times dispossessed and two unsuccessful touches. Um, Awobi led the whole team in pass percentage of the starting 11. Well, actually, Gabrielle did at 84%. Awobi right behind him at 83%. Elneny, who's been hovering around 90%, was at 82 Alexis, 70 Welbeck, 66 Giroud, 73 Nacho Monreal, 57%. And the goalkeeper distributed the ball at a really special 51.9%. Now, admittedly, 26 long balls of his 27 passes. So he went long most of the time. Um, Giroud got the start again and had, by most people's measure, a great game. I disagree, obviously, because that's what I do. I'll explain why in a minute. But what surprised you most, Tim, the fact that Coughlin wasn't in the lineup that Giroud continued to start this time alongside Welbeck or something else altogether? Um, It did surprise me that Coughlin didn't start and although his cameo when he came on was pretty terrible anyway um, I I think that against a (laughs) midfield of Fernando and Fernandinho who are both quite powerful um, and you know because Yaya Torre wasn't there so that that freed up Fernandinho a little bit to play his box to box role which he's much better at um, compared to when he's asked to sit. And I just thought they had too much power for us in midfield because Ramsey and El Nenny are good athletes, but they're not physically imposing in the way that those two are. Um, and, and they're and not fast, Tim. <clears throat> that, that was the no. other thing that struck me. Uh, and especially when you added Jack in. I mean, they're all kind of medium. So if there was a shoulder charge, the faster player, Fernandinho or whoever, would go past yeah. them or they'd end up on their ass. So it was a combination for me of lack of muscle and lack of pace once you kind of got half a stride ahead of these guys you left them yeah that's it and um and actually wilshire coming on i think helped us a little bit just to rest a little bit of control back from that midfield probably at the expense of our kind of creativity going further forward but as you said having lost welbeck anyway i'm not sure we had an awful lot of power in behind anymore so actually that was that was probably um, a good damage limitation move, um, as it turned out. But yeah, I, w- I was a bit surprised by that. Um, what struck me there was you kind of reading out the um, pass percentage statistics, um, and you know how, particularly how many times Czech went long. I don't think it's a coincidence that this was Giroud's best game in ages, where basically nobody could get hold of the ball, and so all they all they were left to do, particularly without Özil was to just try and find Giroud with long balls. And actually, that really suits him. And what we've been saying, I know I've been saying it on this podcast for the last couple of games, that actually Giroud's been kind of set up to fail almost in this team because we've put all of these mobile passing types around him and it just doesn't suit him. And actually, we were kind of, um, by accident, we were panicked into a bit of a bit more of a long ball game. And hey, presto, we got Giroud's best performance in months. Um that said, 
nothing about this game surprised me whatsoever. I, I predicted three all beforehand because I just saw it as Arsenal against their twin brother. Um, I think <laughs> both teams are exactly the same. Both teams have a collection of individuals. Both teams have good defenders um, that are wrongly pilloried because their teams aren't interested in defending, so they're exposed time and time again. Because I think Mangala and Otamendi are good defenders, and I've seen a fair bit of Otamendi before he went to City. He's very good, but if you keep, you know, I, I really wish the penny would drop with a lot of people that if you keep exposing your centre halves, nobody thrives, no defenders thrive in that uh, in that kind of scenario. And actually, what you got was, you know, the atmosphere inside the stadium. I think City are as sick of this season as Arsenal are. Um, there wasn't an awful lot of excitement or tension in the stadium. And despite it being a really open game and a 2-2 draw, it was very short on attacking quality. There were only five shots on target and four of them went in. Um, so neither team attacked very well either. Um, certainly neither team defended very well. It was There was a period, I think, in the middle of the second half, possibly just before our equaliser, where there were about five long balls traded between the teams in a row that just didn't work. And I was watching this and I was just thinking, this, this is like watching League Two. <laughs> and, um, you know, perfectly entertaining, as you said, for the neutral, but very, very low on quality, very low on attacking quality, low on defensive quality. And basically, I think you just saw two very flawed, very open teams who can't wait for the season to end. Yeah, I mean, what was the strategy, Tim? Because, you know, we were hailed when we went to the Etihad last season as as putting in a defensive masterclass and finding a new way to play. And while I, I, I think that was overplayed a little bit, you could see that that was the system. I don't think that was the case here. I don't know that no. there was a system. This no. was Arsenal being pushed back, not being able to control the ball, kicking long because there were no passing options. This just looked dysfunctional. Did you see it the same way? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it just it just showed the extent to which you know, we've been saying this for a few weeks that Arsenal's grasping a bit. He doesn't know what his best team is, both with existing options and without. Um, I don't think he knows what shape this team is, who works together. And we've gone all the way to the end of the season with about three or four different iterations of this team now. And not many of them have really worked. Um, possibly, you know, that little brief period in about October where we had Cazorla deep and Walker up front and Ramsey on the right, that looked good. And then over Easter, when we kind of found Iwobi, Welbeck and Alexis up front and introduced Elneny, and that kind of worked. Um, but I think even now, um, I've, I've got no idea what the starting lineup's going to be against Aston Villa, to be honest. I've got no idea, and I, I don't think Wenger has much of an idea. He's just kind of grasping around. You're right, I, I don't sense at all. If you're going to leave Francis Coquelin out you're, and play you know, Ramsey and Elneny as your double pi pivot, your plan is not to contain. Um, he was kind of, it looks like, trying to go into a bit of a shootout. Maybe he felt that Welbeck would get some joy in behind. And actually, I, I was fairly, um, the last 15 minutes or so, when City, you know, it was clear that City had to win more than we did, and they really, really went for it. And we put Walker on. I, you know, I thought, yeah, that's a really, really good strategy. And actually, we can sit back and soak this up and look to hit Walcott. But I'm not even sure that happened, really. Um, I was just kind of convinced that, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, we're just going to sit back and soak it up and hit on the counter-attack. Yep, any second now. <laughs> any second now. 
Yeah, and, and how did that work out? <laughs> someone's going to try and find Walcott. And then Walcott just ended up, you know, to, it, to his credit, really, just ended up um, almost like on top of Bellerin because I think he realized that without Ozil there, there's just there's nobody really. Well, there was a one moment at like the 94th minute or whatever it was yeah, where Giroud. At the 93rd minute. Yeah, yeah. Giroud could yeah. have sent him through and did this weird sort of step over move first and then got tackled when a yeah. quick one touch release would have because set Theo loose didn't want it on his right foot yeah basically. yeah that's how that works and there were a few, there was the moment shortly after Theo came on that there were a series of quick one One-touch. twos and the, yeah yeah which was an absolutely beautiful move maybe if he'd been on the pitch a bit longer and was a bit more calmed down but he took that big touch once he got in the box but that was a classic you know it's it's Theo it's City here comes the wonder goal, and it was nearly there. It didn't happen, though. Yeah. Yeah, by the but, way, I have to apologize. I did credit uh, us with 77 past success and, and City with 70, and, of course, I've gotten that backwards. We had the 70% past success. They had 77%. I mean, it's really bad. <laughs> uh, you, you were going to jump in, Tim? Sorry. No, no, no. Okay, I okay. Um, well, <laughs> and, and scene. Um, no, I, I think... The other thing that was really alarming about this, and we'll get to the Welbeck injury, and we'll get to Ozil missing the game, and if anybody wants to have a, a, a quick moment of, of uh, apocalyptic predictions over that um, or prognostication. But before we do, defensively, what happened? I mean, I, it, it's interesting with Arsenal because we've had a lot of clean sheets. I think Petr Cech leads the league in clean sheets or is tied for it. But when we concede, we concede in bunches. And this was a case where we turned basic defensive situations into chaos there was huge space to expose us i mean city won 23 dribbles uh i mean that's an astonishing number of of dribbles considering we usually allow six four seven 23 is a lot we made 26 tackles which is also a lot but this was this was a game where it seemed like if they ran at us we had no idea how to handle it paul what what happened defensively, and why were we so vulnerable to just players running at our back four? I think we were definitely susceptible through the middle, as I talked about it. The other key matchup was Navas versus Monreal. And, you know, to be fair to City, I mean, there have a few, few worldies. And Navas, as a winger, not as a finisher, is like, he's an absolute handful. Uh, and he, he, he was more than a match for Monreal, and of course depending on who was on that side. He had Danny for a little while, but even when he had Danny, uh, he was in trouble. Um, and the, the kind of the inter the overlapping with the center back, we had so much trouble coming from that side. We really didn't master that. And I think maybe they just had three or so. Thank God Silva wasn't playing because from De Bruyne, um, Aguero and Navas, they just had a bit too much quality and movement for us. And we weren't up to it. And I think between a little bit of confusion from our centre-backs, it doesn't seem like uh, Koscielny and Gabriel have that same uh, level of understanding between each other. Uh, Monreal being in a bunch of trouble down in that bottom corner. Um, our two central midfielders not... Ha- I mean, you've talked a lot about staying on your feet, etc. One of the mm-hmm. things I like about Coquelin is him getting off his feet because when he gets it right, um, and I think Tim mentioned his cameo in this game wasn't his best, but when he gets that right and he's in form, there's a reason 
and he, he starts racking up the stats. He starts winning those challenges without having to go shoulder to shoulder or without having to match them for pace because that gives him that extra yard. Yeah. And we really miss something. Uh, I will say in his defense for his cameo, he came on just before Yaya came on. And I think he was a big piece of why Yaya didn't have a bigger impact. Uh, I mean, he misplaced some passes. He didn't necessarily win all his challenges by by a long way. But I think he gave Yaya a much more physical presence uh, and annoyed the shit out of him a few times. And we probably would have been in quite a bit more trouble if it hadn't been Cockland uh, in the middle of our defense at that particular time. I think that's fair. I, what, uh, I know we brought on Cockland before him. Who who was more shit, Gabrielle or Koscielny? I mean, they, they had their own personal shit off. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Cockland, or sorry, Koscielny standing there with his hands behind his back, his legs straight that on the wearer shot. That was fantastic. I enjoyed that. Uh, as I always say, I'm not a defender, but then I'm not a midfielder, an attacker, or a goalkeeper before, so that's never stopped me, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I rate him so highly, I don't understand it. I just, what was that? Why doesn't he, you know, we saw just minutes later Aguero taking a shot on goal where both Gabriel and Koscielny charge at him, mm-hmm. and it's enough to A, get a deflection, and B, put him off, which we don't see on that first shot now you know the problem is he's world class and he does get that shot off quickly and hard and low so but it just it just looks ugly and the other thing i'd say defensively is maybe we were a bit rattled Mm -hmm. at how how fast they came at us um and maybe that kind of shook us up a little bit overall we were planning a little bit more possession and passing to play our way out and we didn't have our most defensive lineup but this wasn't Czech's most impressive game either. The first couple of things he did was fumble a ball. This is even before, we, you know, unreasonably straightforward moments. Uh, a little later on, he had the charge out, which could have been calamitous. It was Chesney-like. Um, God bless him wherever he is. And then, of course, there's the two goals, which can be hotly debated. But, mm-hmm. you know, it just... To me, it wasn't Czech's most impressive game, and maybe that was just a lack of confidence in the players in front of him or something. Everybody can blame somebody else because it just... They they were so on their game, I think it rattled us. I'd like to think so because we lost a little bit in every, every part of the park defensively. Yeah, I mean, everything just looked bad. The, the way players were able to just run at us and run at us and we'd back off and back off and get beat and... Then check getting beat at his near post not once but twice. I don't think the first was a goalkeeping error. I do think the second, arguably. Tim, I saw you post um, a snide comment about check on Twitter, <laughs> saying that you uh, you're having nightmares of p rollers at che- to checks right, low to checks right. Saying, I mean, uh, what'd you make of the goalkeeper's performance? And and overall, how do you evaluate check this season? Because I think he's won us games as we thought yeah. he would. Um, <clears throat> But he's probably lost us a fair few as well. Um, I mean, I, I think that's very clearly been a weakness of his for some years. I remember watching him in Euro 2004, just when Chelsea had just bought him. Because um, particularly at that time, I hated Chelsea so much. I thought, I'm going to watch this goalkeeper and I'm going to pick bones out of him. And uh, I remember watching him, you know, he'd have been, what, 21 in that tournament or something. And Czech Republic 
conceded quite a few goals kind of low down and it wasn't just shots it was crosses that went low that you couldn't get to and uh, I, I don't think the years have really done much to correct that um, and in absolute fairness to him if you've got because uh, I think Chesney has exactly the same weakness getting down low to shots he's not very good well, at it well the taller you are <laughs> exactly. the further down you have to go <laughs> exactly and it's and you know you look at some of the goals like the West Ham uh, goal first game of the season um, away at Crystal Palace and at home to Crystal Palace he conceded two shots that weren't that powerful that you know to be fair they were right in the corner but you'd expect someone of his quality um, to get down to them uh, the way I see it is I think he's been he hasn't been himself since he's come back from injury and I think we've seen why Wenger stuck with Aspina for a few games and I think had Aspina not had you know, uh, uh, had Andy Carroll not happened, I think Aspina might still be in goal um, because Wenger made a big call by keeping him because he'd been playing quite well. But in hindsight, it looks like the flip side of it was that he thought that Czech just hadn't really come back to the mark. And, you know, obviously Andy Carroll happens and Aspina, you know, not ostensibly at fault for any of the goals per se, but just doesn't command this area in, in, in the way that a, a player like Czech does or even a goalkeeper like Chesney does. And, you know, Wenger probably felt under a bit of pressure to reinstate Czech and, and everyone was screaming for it um, at, at that point. Um, but, yeah, I, I just think since he came back from injury, he looks different. He, he doesn't look like he's come back up to the mark, whether that's because he's still psychologically feeling it, whether he's physically still feeling it, or whether he's just at that age where it takes a lot longer to recover from injury. I know he was a little bit older, but I remember that certainly used to happen to David Seaman. He'd come back from injury, and it would always take him a couple of months almost to really hit that form again. Um, and, you know, in fairness to Czech, I, I think he has got clearly got a weakness low to his right. Um, and, you know, listen, every player has a weakness, um, maybe apart from Lionel Messi, um, and if you he has a weakness it, paying taxes, I don't know <laughs> if that what that well, means. Yeah, um, and if you're a goalkeeper at Arsenal and you've got a weakness for long, low shots, then Arsenal is not really the club that's going to help you to exacerbate that weakness. Because, um, or sorry, to to kind of cover for that weakness. And if Leicester City have taught everybody one thing this year, it's how to cover your weaknesses. Um, because you know they have not got a fabulous squad of players, but what they do is they've built a system that is designed not only to accentuate their strengths but to cover their respective weaknesses. And, and yeah. Arsenal haven't quite cracked that. And you know, yeah, if you're weak for long range shots as a goalkeeper, then Arsenal is is going to make you look bad. You'll have to check 7 a.m. kickoff for accurate statistics. I like to give you approximate statistics, and the one I remember from reading his timeline is that Czech has been beaten by the highest percentage of shots from distance in the Premier League. Um, <clears throat> I think and some of that. Chesney had a very similar statistic a couple of seasons yeah. ago, so maybe there's maybe they've got exactly the same flaws. Or they have or the same flaw in front of them. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, let me ask you this real quick, Tim, just while we're on it. Uh, Lauren Koscielny is clearly a talented defender, but do you think maybe, and I know we get into things like mindset and things like that, and you're, it's all guesswork, but do you think maybe he doesn't have the makeup as a player to be the leader of a central defense? I feel like 
when he's with Murta Sacker, he can concentrate on the physical side of the game in terms of using his pace, his timing, yeah. his his vision, and he's pretty good. When he is paired with uh, Gabrielle and becomes the more senior leader of the defense, I don't know that I feel as confident with him. Do you think the pairing and Koscielny's sort of mindset when he has to be the leader is holds him back and maybe explains a little bit of why he struggled this game? A little bit, but I think this is entirely typical. When you when you look at a good centre half partnership, there's you know, let's take Mertesacker and Koscielny. You've got you know the one who kind of sits there, who controls, who directs, because he's not running around Mertesacker, so he can see the bigger picture Lord and he can knows. things <laughs> exactly. And then you've got and you know you look at Chelsea, John Terry. He's not very mobile. He is the one that sits there, so he sees the bigger picture. And he'll always have someone next to him who probably at his peak, someone like Gallas or Carvalho who does that running around. And that kind of centre-half, which is the kind of centre-half Koscielny is as well, is never a leader. Um, and you only have to go back a few years with Arsenal with Colo Torre because Colo Torre was that kind of fast recovery defender. Um, but he always struggled when Sol Campbell came out and it came to a point where he was the senior one. So I think that's entirely typical I do also that I think Koscielny has not had a great season. Um, to be honest with you, as, as much as... I wish you would. Saying, <laughs> as much as I'm, I'm not saying he's bad or I don't like him or anything like that, I do think Arsenal fans slightly overrate Lauren Koscielny. And I think it's understandable because he's very visible. Um, he's, you know, in, in so the are his mistakes. He does. <laughs> yeah, and I kind of think that actually Koscielny sometimes unsettles um, our other defenders because his positioning's not always fantastic. Um, you know, you look back to, th- there's times where Mertesacker has certainly been exposed, you know, thinking most uh, most of the, the sending off against Chelsea, but actually if you look at what Koscielny's doing at the same time, it's not great either. Um, and I, I do think that Koscielny is perhaps not quite as good as a lot of Arsenal fans would have you believe. Like I said, not to say he's not excellent and I'm not happy with him. And, and, you know, to refer to the caveat I said earlier, that actually when you've got such a loose defensive structure, that's only going to make things worse um, for your centre-half. So I've been disappointed with Koscielny this season because I think even given that impression, he usually copes with it better than he has this year. Perhaps in mitigation... You know, he's basically, he's trying, Wenger's really trying to make this Gabriel Koscielny thing work, I think. And actually that's, again, that's got to be difficult for Koscielny because he's been so used to playing with Mertesacker. Mertesacker, very rarely injured. Um, so that partnership has just carried on and on for the last three to four years. You know, Vermaelen couldn't get a look in because there were never any injuries in that pairing for him to get any sort of run at game. So he had to go. And so it's it's probably quite unsettling um, for him. And actually, if you look at Koscielny, he's the only constant in that back five. You know, the goalkeeper's changed, the right-back's changed, the left-back's changed. Mm-hmm. And now the centre-half next to him has changed. He's the only constant. And that does speak to his quality, but that also makes things a bit difficult for him. That yeah. said, I still would have thought that he'd cope with it a bit. You know, he's not been calamitous, but I think he's been a little bit... Um, a little bit suspect this season. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with any of that. And I think at 30, for a player who probably relies on pace more than some center backs 
to get him out of positioning problems, you have to wonder if it starts to be a little bit downhill for him. Um, you know, it's interesting too, because I thought Nacho Monreal had a very poor game and I think his performances have been a little uneven this this season. And Mertesacker's time at Arsenal may be over. Koscielny and Monreal are both 30. Uh, Callum Chambers is nowhere to be found. We seem to be looking at a very young Bolton center back. You wonder what what the future of the center, center of Arsenal's defense is. I mean, maybe for the very immediate future, it's Gabriel and Koscielny, but there's no reason to feel particularly optimistic about that if that's the case. Uh, you know, and, it's, and Wenger's obviously not that optimistic about it either because he changed it a couple of games ago. Yeah. He dropped Gabriel, so he's obviously not utterly convinced that it's worked. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And you have to wonder where... Uh, Paul, let me ask you, because you, know, you seem to be on the internet a lot and pretty resourceful guy. Maybe you've done some <laughs> sleuthing. Where, where is Callum Chambers? Uh, I've no idea. Didn't he play for the under-21s the other day? So that was nice. He had a nice little run around. What the, what the fuck has happened with him? I mean, what did he well, do wrong? <laughs> well, he's got... We got the problem that... There was no... Know, by the way, there was no center back on the bench. None. If there had been an injury, and I know we never pick up those kind of things, but if there had been an injury, I guess Nacho was the emergency center back because... I mean, it's not going to be Kieran Gibbs. It's not going to be Francis Coughlin, I wouldn't think. So, I mean, it's really interesting to me. He's he's just not part of the manager's plans right now. Well, that is interesting. Um, and I, I did hear that talked about. That's the fly in the ointment with all of this. But, I mean, as a center-back pairing, obviously, he's always had two of the three available. So, Callum hasn't been getting a look in there. Uh, in midfield, for a while... Now we've been overstocked. His chance to get a look in was during the Flamini era, and I think we've always seen that somehow the manager rates Flamini higher than we do, and Cesc thinks he's the best midfielder he ever played with so far. Yeah, off. I read that. Um, yeah. Although he, he played with him at a time when he you know, was, was actually good. Was good. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I don't get the Callum Chambers thing. Um, I do sense with Callum uh, an immaturity. I think I brought that up before. A, a slight softness mentally. I don't mean like, well, I don't know. I don't know what the right adjective is. But if Basically, the adjective you're looking for is however you describe his first half against Liverpool. Well, you remember I believe, that? I do. Yeah, <laughs> he I just looked even, like a man yeah. totally bereft of, of any will, desire to be on the pitch and wanting to hide somewhere. Yeah. Um, so not that harsh. I dial that back a lot. I just think there's just there's some maturing there to be done, uh, and we'll, I still yet to see him where he has that kind of hardness you're looking for from a centre back that that comes out there. Um, and he just maybe just I, obviously footballing wise, he seems to have the skills. Uh, he's not the fastest right back, but he's fast enough for any position in the middle of the field. He's got the size, needs a bit more experience. But maybe mentally, he doesn't bring, uh, not that we're always famous for it, he, do, he doesn't bring the toughness you look for in an, in an Arsenal center of the spine kind of player at the moment. God help us, that must be a really guess, low bar he's hitting. But, but like maybe we're way too up our own ass when it comes to players, individual players' skills and weaknesses and stuff sometimes. Because you look at Leicester, who just won the league, and they have guys like Danny Simpson and, and Robert Huth in, in midfield, uh, in midfield, in defense. Um, I mean, 
There's no center back pairing that I could name at Arsenal right now, barring a signing this summer, that you'd feel confident in next season, right? If I said to you going into next season, it's going to be Gabriel and Koscielny or Chambers and Koscielny or Chambers and Gabriel or Mertesacker and Koscielny, there's no center back pairing where you'd say, yep, I feel confident. Let's use that for 38 games. And it can't be about the players. Those players all, I mean, Gabriel, Lauren Koscielny, Per Mertesacker, Callum Chambers, there's talent there. This has to be a bigger problem. I mean, Arsenal have conceded three or more goals on eight occasions this season. That That's just, to me, that's astounding. I mean, at some point, don't we have to acknowledge that our system makes central defenders look bad and not the other way around? I think it does. Good. I make a quick point and then hand it to Tim. When you look at um, Barca, when they get put, put under pressure, um, their defense looks pretty pretty poor well the right same, but that's the, the same the, right they, they they defend in the opponent's half so if the ball yeah. gets into their half it's usually a 1v1 or a two-on-one it's a counter-attack right i mean yeah that's but, but you know I, I, that didn't happen on on sunday i agree i'll come to that though okay um so there's that aspect of it and the same is true of Bayern. uh the same is true of dortmund um that if you get enough pressure if you can wrestle the ball off them now the the difference is it's a lot easier. We're not as good as those teams. It's a lot easier to put us under pressure, but we're still kind of designed mentally to go the other way. And we have had success where we sat back and everybody showed up on the pitch to defend with two banks of four. You know, we, we've seen those kinds of games. As you said, we didn't seem to set up for this city game in that way, but we ended up playing that way because we weren't good enough to play our way out of it. So we're kind of neither one thing nor the other. And that probably doesn't make you the best defensive team in the league. Let's put that it this said, way. Oh, go ahead. Yes, we, we've lots of clean sheets. We've lots of, you know, you know, you can always pull together stats where we've done pretty well. I'm not quite as pessimistic about our centre-back pairings as you, but I know where you're coming from on it. I, I would well, well, argue that... again, though, wasn't about of, the players. It's about... Yeah, no, the, I agree. Right. Yeah. Anyway, so that's my, my little addition. I do think it's a function, as you said, of the system, our style. You know, one of the ways we could solve it is by being better on the rest, at the rest of our game. Or having a clear plan as to what our game is, which I think for a while we did, and now I'm not sure we do, and... I mean, when yeah. the guy look, Aaron Ramsey the classic, the, the classic worst thing to be is in the middle of two styles, and I mm-hmm. think that's we are. That's why I go back to if we were better, we would push into the other pole of just being more possession, more attacking, and you know, riding our luck with some quality defenders, uh, kind of Barcelona style. But we end up being that team that's not quite good enough to be what they want to be, uh, and not quite defensive enough when we can't be. Yeah, I mean, Aaron Ramsey, who played the most passes in the side at 55, completed only 69% of them. So, you know, what that says to me is you better not have seven players in the opposition half when the central midfielder who plays the most passes in your team has 31% of them not reaching their target, right? Um, Because you're going to be in a lot of trouble. I just, there, there is a sense of chaos that surrounds this team when it's out of possession, um, which is worrying. And you look at what happened, um, you know, we had 
Koscielny go long seven times, Monreal go long seven times, Ramsey and Elneny went long five times, four times. I mean, the, the passing combinations aren't there. The players are under pressure, and they're just booting it long. The system is failing the defenders, certainly. Now, that doesn't mean the defenders didn't let themselves down on Sunday in particular, uh, but I think in general it's letting them down. Let's move off defending for a minute and and come to a player who is increasingly, if he wasn't before, polarizing, and that's Aaron Ramsey. And Tim, I know that you have a lot of time for Aaron Ramsey, and, and I, I, I don't want to characterize myself as not having a lot of time for Aaron Ramsey. I want to say that I am uh, not convinced that either he is the player we have built him up to be, kind of like Lauren Koscielny, or that he has a, a role at Arsenal that is clear and coherent but at this point, I think it has to be said that he has certainly not had the season we would have hoped for from him. Do you still believe he is the player that we saw from the first half of whatever it was, two seasons ago, where he was arguably the best player in England? Uh, or do you think that that was a little bit of a mirage? Is this is this about not having the right role? What do you think is the, the crux of the problem for Ramsey at Arsenal? I think the crux of the problem is, um, you know, not really playing to his strengths and that speaks to exactly what Paul was saying that we've fallen between two styles um, one of which Ramsey probably fits into and one of which he probably doesn't um, and you know when he was on the right hand side for example earlier in the season I thought he was fantastic there um, thought yeah. that, that, that really really worked very very well whether he liked it or not um, and for me, his, his, uh, so I, I think he is that player that we saw a couple of seasons ago. I, I don't see any reason why he's not, um, other than we've tweaked that that system was absolutely built to get the best out of him. And now we don't really seem to have a clear plan for how to use him. And this kind of last five or six games shows that because he's obviously been told for, for fairly good reason, you know, to rein it in a bit and not attack quite so much. But, you know, does that get the best out of him personally? He's doing it and he's doing the job he's being asked. But, you know, does that get the best out of him personally? No, I don't think it does. And a lot of his future really will boil down to what we do this summer and what kind of team we become. I think, you know, the the Ramsey issue, as it were, is solved by buying a defensive midfield player who moves the ball intelligently a la Mikel Arteta, you know, possibly someone slightly better than that, as much as I like and respect Mikel Arteta, but someone of a, a, a slightly better vintage. Um, I think if you have that again, you'd really, really start to see a different Aaron Ramsey. But a lot a lot depends on what he does with this team, because I think there are, you know, he, he, he could go one of several ways, really, because it's all a bit of a mess. And it just depends on, on which way he decides to go. And if he goes one particular way, then, you know, you'd have to look at it and say, well, no, there probably isn't a role for Aaron Ramsey in this team. If he goes another way, then yes, there very much is. And it just depends on what he does. Um, but at the moment, it's very, very clear that there isn't really a clear idea of how to use him. It's very, very clear that the manager really rates him, really wants him in the team, um, but he just doesn't know how yet. And I think, he, I think Arsene Wenger might have had, in an alternative universe where Abu Dhabi was fit, 
I think we'd have seen exactly the same thing. I think he has the same level of faith in Ramsey because he always plays him. Mm -hmm. He never leaves him on the bench. He gets him in that team by hook or by crook. We went to Manchester City without a recognised defensive midfield player so that Aaron Ramsey could play. We put him on the right so that Aaron Aaron Ramsey was in the team. And I think had Diaby been fit, we'd have had um, a, a really, really similar quandary in terms of Wenger would always want him on the pitch but perhaps wouldn't have a clear idea of how to use him and you know a clear team setup that gets the best out of him and I think that's what we're seeing at the moment and, and really how this thing resolves itself just depends entirely what, what Wenger's plan is assuming there's a plan um, at all and you know I think it's quite lamentable that here we are in May on the back of a season where with the exception of the Copper America, there were no international tournaments or anything like that. You know, he had as full a pre-season as he's ever going to have with his squad last summer. And um, he, he didn't really seem to come up with anything um, in that fairly extended time period. So I'm not sure how optimistic I am that he's going he's gonna to crack it all in a slightly punctuated pre-season um, and it, it, it just depends on what he does. And there, there's a lot of noise around um, this guy from Munchen Gladbach and Chaka. You know, yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, it, it seems to me, reading between the lines, we're at least certainly very interested. And I wouldn't mind betting that that being the case, that Arsene Wenger sees him as someone that can really work alongside Aaron Ramsey, that that's the plan he's making. Um, I still don't think he'll quite plan around Wilshere yet. And I think maybe he'd see Wilshere more in that wide playmaker role at the moment until he can prove his fitness in the longer term. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, basically, we just don't really have a clear plan for him at the moment, and it shows. Yeah, I think it does. I mean, it, he didn't have a single touch in the box on Sunday. Yeah. That. That's not what you want from Ramsey. He didn't have a shot from inside 20 yards. He took one shot. It was blocked. It was from about 25 yards out. Um, I just, I don't think the answer is playing him on the wing, obviously. I don't think you're saying that either. Um, But I just don't see him as a central midfielder. I think Aaron Ramsey is naturally the kind of player who wants to be dynamic and score goals and his little pieces of skill that are risky and can come off. I mean, in a way, he's he's a Welsh Alexis Sanchez. And I know that sounds ridiculous because the playing styles couldn't seem more different, but, but they are the same in the sense that tremendous engines love to try a dribble, love to try a piece of skill to beat a man, to take a shot, whether it's from distance or inside, not afraid to try the the difficult technical skill. I just, I don't think that he is ever going to be someone who is going to be totally clued into positional discipline and, and, you know, my partner's going, so I'm staying, I'm going, so he's staying and tracking runners. I mean, he's the most dribbled player in the league. Period, um, and was so again. I believe on Sunday when City had their whatever it was outrageous twenty six dribbles. Um, uh, there were what thirty one dribbles attempted by City. They had twenty three successful dribbles. So I just I I think at some point a player's desire to play a certain way manifests itself in how they're going to perform when you try to shoehorn them into roles that that aren't right for them. And I don't think it's 
a, a coincidence that his best spell was on the right, not because he's naturally a winger, but because he was allowed to come inside, play closer to goal, and and participate in the dynamic part of the attack without some of the responsibilities that you have in the center of midfield. Now you could say, well, he tracked back to cover his fullback. That's a much more straightforward role um, than than you manning a two-man midfield. And maybe part of the problem is figuring out where Ozil fits into that. But, you know, we, we played without Ozil on Sunday, and and I thought it really showed, um, especially on the counter, on the few times we had counterattacks, it looked like everybody was standing in the same place and no one knew where to go or, or where to play the ball. Um, real quick question for both of you, I guess. Paul, um, the future looks pretty bleak if it's a future without Mesut Ozil, but do you have any conspiracy theories about him missing the game on Sunday? I don't think so. Uh, it seemed like we were worried about Alexis the week before. Well, I'm still worried about Alexis, by the way. Yeah. I can worry yeah. about two things at once. I, I'm a multitasker. Yeah. No, I, I don't think so. We've got good resources. I, As I said before, I think if push comes to shove, if we're feeling pressure from the players, we'll get them to to settle down for one more year for Arsenal's last season, if that's the way we want to play it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the only way Ozil goes is if the manager isn't fully convinced. Maybe less about Ozil, but you know, when when you try and solve our midfield conundrum, as we're talking about here, the first thing you got to realize is that you've got three midfield players, of whom Ozil and Ramsey are are two of them, and therefore that third player better be fucking Superman from a defensive standpoint. And so, you know, even Mikel Arteta with legs has his work cut out for him in that scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think there's a player on the planet who can yeah. cover the ground needed to make that work. I mean, yeah, Francis because, Coughlin covers a lot of ground, and he's not even yeah, getting to play with Ramsey at the moment. Exactly. Because either you ask Ramsey to really sit back, in which case, what's the point? What's the point, yep. Mm-hmm. Um, or... You know, once you decide Ozil's part of your three. So, you know, the manager, as we've said, the manager has to kind of piss to get off the pot and move from this middle ground of lots of good midfielders to finding a... People that fit specific roles and and systems? (laughs) Yeah, and, and backups who can slot in so that we have that... Swap a hot swappable spear that if you know your hard drive goes down, you swap in one just like it, not just another hard drive that's kind of a bit like it, but you got to reformat the disk and it's kind of a different shape. So you have to knock a bit of a hole in the side of your computer. I may be getting a little off track Gosh, here. I've, mi- I've missed your analogies, <laughs> yeah. So that's the point of a hot swappable, uh, you know, a, a hot swappable disk or component. It plops in exactly the same as the thing it replaced. Kind of like what we could go. have used when Cazorla went down. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. As as opposed to actually all three midfielders have to be changed in effect. And so uh, I don't think so. I, and generally with ru- rumors my tendency is to disbelieve them just for my own sanity and because most rumors are They're shit. mostly shit. Yep. Well... Um, and I think Ozil's the unlikely one. But I, I I don't think... We haven't lost a player for a long time that we didn't want to lose. So that's a pretty strong trend. I'm going with that. We're not losing anybody we don't want to lose. Fair enough. Um, real quick, Tim, because I don't think it requires a lot of discussion, but <clears throat> any any worry, conspiracy theory, Ozil gone? 
along um, with the left. Someone, someone tweeted me when I was on the train uh, to the match, and so this was about half past ten in the morning, saying uh, Ozil's not travelled. Um, he said Ozil's not travelled because he can't be bothered. Um, now, whether whether that was driven by information or because the, the guy clearly had the information because he was absolutely right, it was nowhere else. Um, he told me where he got the information from, and I know the individual, um, so I thought, yeah, that that definitely sounds solid. That's whether, worrying. Whether, <laughs> if he can't be bothered sec- to show up for the match, whether the second half of what he said was based on information or just emotion, I've I've got absolutely no idea, quite frankly. But someone did did tweet me that, um, you know, going up to the game, and I searched it on Twitter as well, and and nobody, like nobody, was talking about this at all. So, Did you ever um, follow up with him to say, were you just joking about the second part? Or um, I, I haven't, because I've forgotten the gentleman's handle. So <laughs> How convenient. To, I'll have to comb through um, a little bit. So I, I don't know. I, was I it, was it, just out of curiosity, Indy Kalia, Kyla News? No, no, <laughs> just no. kidding. I, I find it unlikely that even our manager would indulge something like that. It, you know, it could be, you know, he had a slight injury. And listen, Ozil was an unused sub when we went to Manchester City last year um, and won there. But we set up so much differently. I'm really not sure that there's an awful lot in that at all. Um, maybe he thought that it would make things a little bit more secure because I think Paul's described perfectly, actually, that Ozil does give you some problems structurally. Um, if you put him in your midfield three, he's so good that they're problems worth having, but they're problems nonetheless. Um, and Paul's right, something's got to give, and really it's not Ozil because he's he's so good that really what you do is you try and accommodate for that. You would think so, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly, because he's our best player, um, and therefore you everything else is disposable, basically, if it, if it makes yeah. him work. But maybe a bit like the Stoke game back in January where Ozil probably could have played, but maybe the manager thought, well, this is an away game where we might want to counter-attack a bit, where we might be under the cosh a bit. And, you know, maybe I can afford to let him slide in this one. Um, so I, I'm not sure I'm convinced it's, oh, he couldn't be bothered to play, but because I'm convinced he'll play against Aston Villa. Um and so I wouldn't be any more worried about it than I was about him missing the Stoke game because it sounds very similar, um, to be quite honest. So, but nevertheless, I, I think we do have some worries there with Ursula and Alexis. That said, they've both got two years left. So it, I think even if they say no to a contract this summer or they say we want to see how it goes, I, I think we'd be prepared to hang on to them both for another season unless they really, really push. Yeah, uh, I mean, we don't have a history of holding players to their contract. No, no. I I can't see Ozil pushing to go. I could maybe foresee a scenario where he says, listen, I want to see how this season goes before I sign, and I want to see how our manager's going to be, and blah, blah, blah. Um, Alexis, it's a little bit more difficult to read um, at the moment. There's a bit more noise around Alexis, and I don't know if that's grandstanding or whether you know he's a bit fed up. Um, the thing is with Alexis more than Özil, it's difficult because he's he's had like he's had a bad season by his standards. Yet he still scored 17 goals, but 
there is a part of me that thinks, well, actually, you're part of the underperformance this season. I think that less with Ozil because I look at him and I think you're pretty much doing your job, um, creating like 150 chances a game, and it's just there's a fair amount of ineptitude around you. Um, whereas with Alexis, it's a bit like there seems to be a bit of tension there, and it seems to be based on the fact that Alexis just wants to play every single minute of every game, and actually. I remember Wenger making some comments, I think, after the whole game at home when Alexis came on. And he didn't name Alexis personally, but he said, you know, we were trying to force it too much. We were trying too hard and we went for individual solutions. And I think Alexis came on and had about four shots that all went off target. And I think sometimes Alexis, um, you know, if he's having a bad time, will make it worse for himself because he will try and, like, you know, hammer some form out of himself and actually just make things a little bit worse, whereas I don't think Ozil does that. I think Ozil is a slightly more elite player mentality-wise. Um, so, But obviously, I, I think both situations are a bit worrying yeah. um, at the moment, to be quite honest, and I'm not sure I'd put an awful lot of money on what the solutions are going to be either way. I think it seems like it's a bit in the balance, which is, um, and, and while it is, that's that's scary. The cynic in me says, if we can finish top four with Danielson and Nick Bentner uh, and finish top four with Ozil and Alexis, then maybe it just doesn't matter. Um, obviously, that's not the case. But, uh, uh, Paul, you want to add on that? Yeah, just a couple of quick things. Um, does anybody think Ozil didn't want the assists record? Because that's what traveling to City cost him. Admittedly, he hasn't been banging in the assists recently, but... Any, I think anybody with a chance of getting the assists record, I can't imagine Ozil didn't want that, which makes me think it was valid. Um, and the other side, in terms of holding people to contracts, I agree if you look over the last decade. But the last few years, you know, we don't have that problem where $20 million or 20 million quid puts a hole in our boat anymore. No, um, I'm just saying name someone we've, held beyond the point where they wanted to go. Oh, I fully agree. But in the last few years, uh, name players we've held till the last year of their contract, you know, Theo, uh, we, were, we were happy to... Sanya, uh, RVP in effect, although we took the 20 million in the end. So they got another year left. We're, we're not at that old point, and I think it's a different ball game now anyway. I think you, could, you can easily reverse that and say in the last three years, who have we sold that we really, really didn't want to let go? So I think, yeah. I, think, I think the ball's in our court. Is there a bigger problem? I don't know. I'm guessing Ozil wanted that assist record. As, as Tim says, I bet he plays against Villa. And the boy likes playing football. Who wouldn't want to play City? So... I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, look, there's a Euros coming up, and if there was a little bit of a niggle, he may be starting to prioritize his yep. participation in the Euros. I, who, who the hell knows? You, can't, you just can't guess with this stuff. You just don't know. But um, real quick, some quick hits before we get out of here. One, one thing we have to talk about is the Welbeck injury. And, Tim, we had a little bit of a discussion, not even a discussion. You just made a point on Twitter uh, to me and Paul about maybe this some way – validates what we were discussing with him not being in the side the last few weeks. But then again, he was in the side, not at the expense of Giroud today, but with Giroud. So, mm. I mean, 
do you think that this shows that we were right to not be starting him, or do you think this injury was just a freak thing that could have happened to anyone at any time? I mean, it wasn't the it it wasn't the knee that was injured. It's a new knee. Yeah, yeah. It, on, on reflection, it does just kind of look unlucky, doesn't it? I've, I've not actually yeah, seen of course. it back. Like in terms of, it's just. Am I right in saying like he seemed to jar it a bit? So it's not like he was running and so you know it. It, I, he planted I, in a weird way um, yeah. with a lot of force so, on, on... There was contact, wasn't there? There was I mean, contact, was, yeah. yep. Yeah. 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 And I mean, ultimately, again, it's not the injured knee, so it's not like, well, no. see, we've been resting him because we were worried, and then we played him and something happened, then, it's the other knee. But then I, I remember Wenger saying a couple of years ago, he, was, he did this interview and someone asked him about his, his biggest regrets as a manager... And he said his biggest regret was playing Robert Pires against Newcastle in 2002 because he said uh, in a cup game where he did his cruciate ligament, he said, I had the data and everything was telling me that he was tired and I planned to rest him all week. And then on the look, because I was scared, because basically when a player becomes tired, um, that, you know, they, they kind of, they make those weird physical decisions. Sometimes they don't land quite right. And basically, Wenger said that all of everything I'd seen and all the data I'd collected told me that Pires was tiring and that I should rest him and I'd resolve to rest him. And then the day before the match, I just changed my mind. I he couldn't do it. And then he said he got injured in exactly the way he thought that he would, i.e. he went to hurdle a tackle and because he was a bit tired, he just came down on it and the knee buckled. And, you know, he said that's just down to... You know, in a fraction of a second, your muscles and your legs are a bit tired. You try to overcompensate. You make different mental decisions, and and, and I, I don't know if that's what happened with Welbeck. No, none of us know, um, quite frankly. But that there's a chance that that's what he feared, um, and you know, it happened very early in the game as well. Um, and you know, it's it's it, it's gutting for him really because I think Welbeck has been. One of the very, very few bright spots for Arsenal since Christmas. Absolutely. And, you know, if he's got to miss the Euros, having missed, you know, over a year, nearly a year of football, you know, the look on his face said it all. And I saw him walk down the tunnel and, you know, it just really feared the worst. And it, it does look bad. And, and I, yeah, I the, feel uh, gutted men- for meniscus him. injury was mooted by the manager. Yeah, and I, I feel gutted for him on a personal level because, really, in t- you know, thinking selfishly about Arsenal. Um, there's only one game left and, you know, he might miss a bit of the beginning of next season. Uh, at the time of recording, we don't have any prognosis. But Well, he, he could miss a chunk of next season. I mean, I, I mean, he could, yeah. And, um, I mean, but with all due respect, level, screw the Euros. I mean, his, his next yeah. season could be another comeback in January situation. It, it could, and that, that would be terrible for us and for him. At the moment, I think my overriding emotion is to feel sorry for him on an individual level, because I, I really hope that Arsenal buy a striker or two in the summer anyway. Um, well, but, look, you know, the obvious solution there, Tim, is to pick up Daniel Sturridge and then someone to keep Danny Welbeck <laughs> company on the training table. <laughs> well, obviously. Um, but, yeah, I, I really hope it's it's not that bad. But, you know, first and foremost for him um, personally at the moment, because I think he's been really, really good in the second half of the season. Um, he really, really looks like, He's starting to possibly develop into the the player we think he can be, and a huge bonus for Arsenal. And and you know he seems like a nice enough guy as well. And he he really doesn't deserve this luck. It's it's really upsetting because 
it's the players that seem to give us something different that we keep losing. Yeah. Uh, Welbeck, who we don't really have a natural replacement for. Santi Cazorla, who we don't really have a natural replacement for. I mean, even you know Jack Wilshire could kind of do what Santi Cazorla does, and we didn't have him. Uh, you could even say Thomas Rosicki. But you know, those players who add a different dimension are the ones you don't want to lose, and, and those are the ones we seem to keep losing. And um, it's, it's just really unfortunate. I think it'd be the high, highest expression of my bias if we didn't discuss Olivier Giroud really quickly before ending this. And, Paul, I'll ask you this. Did Olivier Giroud have a good game, or did Olivier Giroud have two moments that are the just the perfect microcosm of what Olivier Giroud can do well? Heading uh, heading from a set piece, an unmarked free header from a set piece, and a flick on the edge of the box. Um, no, I think he definitely had a good game. I I, I liked really? Tim. Yeah, I <laughs> go liked, on. <laughs> I, <laughs> I liked Tim's take on it. Uh, you know, it was a game that started to play to his strengths. Nobody else was doing much. What he was really missing was somebody running behind. And I mean, Theo had three moments with with uh, Giro on the pitch where um, Theo could have been the man. Um, Alexis clearly became less mobile. I mean, his goal came from dropping deep and then there was the really nice... That was interesting, though. One thing Tim always bangs on about, Tim, is that Alexis and Giroud don't play well together and it's, it's always been the case and that was sort of their first real time inter- interacting in a very positive way. It was, though it wasn't from Alexis's normal spot no, stuck on the left wing. Very it was him point. impersonating Santi Cazorla from deep. Or Ramsey. That's uh, the kind of run Ramsey would usually make and profit from. Yeah. And it was also City were tired and they gave him way too much space. 30 yards he, space, yeah. Yeah, they gave him the kind of space that one way or another we conspired to give their midfielders or De Bruyne or whoever running through the middle. So w- we were owed. Um, but no, I thought he was very good overall, but I don't like how it makes us play. I thought he had a good game. I thought most things he did made sense. He did well. You know, it was a battling, but definitely, I mean, it was the classic, there are two center backs banging off him. It could have been really frustrating um, had we not had effectively two moments of brilliance. Uh, admittedly, he had a brilliant header because they didn't mark him very well, but... It was an absolute... Wasn't it El Nenny who put in the corner? And I think we've seen yep. him take yeah, a free was. kick or two from wide. I mean, it was a perfectly hit corner. We seem to trust him on corners and kind of corner-like free kicks. We've, we've used him a few times. Maybe he's just... You let midfielders do that. But we don't let just any Joe Soap take those. And he hit that perfectly. Uh, and, of course, there was a, the Alexis uh, goal, which was absolutely superb. Yeah. And we created one or two other real goal-scoring opportunities in the match where, you know, his hold-up play played a role in it. I mean, he should have played through uh, Walcott at the end of the game on thirty on the 93rd minute. Yep. That should have been... That was certainly, if you take it in terms of his style and what he brought to the game, that could have been, you know, a tick in his box. Um, so, it... it it was kind of a. I think it was a decent game for his style and its impact. I mean, look, statistically, he didn't complete a lot of passes. He was dispossessed quite a bit. I mean, he didn't have a lot of shots on target or or you I know off target fair. even. But but when you're the guy battling the two center backs, 
that's just par for the course. I mean, pretty much everything he did was a, a longish ball or a ball coming at him where the yeah. centre-back knows to step in front of him. So he's always going to be pressured. So I wouldn't hold him to a high completion rate. I, I think I'd more hold him to how did we play. And That's we fair. Really, we really, to, to your point, we really struggled for a long time with him on the pitch and we weren't particularly mobile. And Alexis didn't have a particularly good game. But I think if you take his game, I think he did pretty well. Yeah, and I mean, look, I thought I thought Alexis. You know, you look at that though, that moment of individual brilliance, that finish. That's not like an easy finish, and it was so no. uh, decisive and authoritative, and and just that's the kind of thing about Alexis that I think is astounding. No matter how out of form he may be, he can he can deliver that kind of sensational individual quality um, at but any that's, moment. That's one of the goals. I mean, when you think about that goal, you can see he's visualizing his two Labradors bounding along beside <laughs> him as he yeah. flounces up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, mean, okay. I and get he's, it. it isn't just an illusion he has space. He has, it's like an open wheat field with the wheat blowing there's from a, one side to the other. And there's a parting and then he dances through the middle. I mean, even the shot on goal. I mean, has anybody, when you see it in slow, in slow motion... Has anybody ever had more goal to shoot at when they're one-on-one with the keeper? I mean, it's just, it's poetic. There's music playing. There's two Labradors. What is going on? Can we, stay, can we just move on? Uh, okay, so let, let's wrap it up. I mean, we've, we've waffled on quite a bit, but... Hey! Um, uh, sorry, sorry. Paul's waffled on quite a bit. Um, but, Tim, just real quick, some people had a problem with the Arsene Wenger fist pump at full time for a draw that maybe kind of sort of secures top four. Look, in a game where we had injuries and we haven't been at our best and we were down twice, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world. And and you look like maybe you're holding on a little at the end. I I think there were a lot of Arsenal fans internally kind of fist-pumping that draw. Do you have any problem with that? No, no, not at all. I I think, like, I I looked at it and I think people are just looking for... It's any stick to beat the manager right now, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if it had, like, you know, if it had been prolonged or he'd gone dancing on the pitch or something, yeah. But, I mean, it was just, like, a little, you know... And it was almost like a subconscious reaction. He caught himself and whatnot. And, you know, that was fine. I I don't remember. I probably did something quite similar. Oh, I did. Uh, I fully expected us to lose that game in the end, so... Yeah. yeah, I mean, the the reality is... Third is just as good as second from a yeah. purely pragmatic of standpoint. Of course it is. I mean, other than the finishing above Spurs part. But yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah, losing exactly. that game, uh, uh, there's a reason City came out all charged up. Coming fourth or coming fifth for them, coming third or fourth for us. I mean, coming fourth this summer with the Euros, that's a fucking... You've written off the start of your season. It's a big fucking deal securing third. We we needed a draw, and that's the reality of it. Yeah, and yeah. I'll tell you something. It's not done. I, this is going to be interesting. I mean, if you said to me, can Arsenal lose at home to Aston Villa? I don't expect it, but of course we can. Um, can Arsenal beat Aston Villa, and can Spurs collapse against Newcastle that may still be fighting for their life? They can. I mean... In a weird way, there's a lot of drama left to a game at the end of the season that feels absolutely meaningless, but it it isn't meaningless. Um, and there's we, st- there's still work to do. Go ahead, Tim. Yeah, I was going to say at, at this moment we can still finish fifth and we can still finish second. Yeah, and and so and the problem for me is that I mean, realistically, finishing fifth I think would more accurately reflect the season we've had, and finishing second would maybe 
a travesty of justice. Well, would would yeah, would certainly maybe put a, a veneer on the season or a gloss on the season it doesn't deserve. I am not one of these people that says, oh, I hope we finish fifth because then it'll force change. Fuck that. I'd like to finish second and above Spurs and then have change anyway. Uh, give me my cake and I would like to also eat my cake. What would be the point of having the cake otherwise? But uh, yeah, so it'll be it'll be interesting. There's a lot to go. We've we've gone on long enough. I mean, there's still so much we could probably dig into. Uh, if you guys are open to it, we can probably do an end of season pod and do all the usual things like best moment, worst moment, second worst moment, third yeah. worst moment, fourth worst moment, fifth worst moment, um, and all that. But uh, until then, let's let's leave it. We'll have hopefully a lot of good stuff to dig into after the Villa game, and it'll be curious to see. You know, what comes out about Welbeck's injury? Does Ozil play next weekend? Um, the rumors linking us to Shaka uh, are starting to heat up. And then we get all the fun transfer speculation season. So tingling with excitement for that. Uh, but anyway, Tim, thank you so much. My pleasure as always. Yep. Find Tim on Twitter at Stoberto. Read him on our blog, among other places. You, uh, you did something for a website I hadn't heard of that I saw you post. You want to promote that real quick? Um, yeah, it's actually for um, an Indian newspaper, which I think is entirely online now, called uh, Live Mint. Okay. Uh, and I, I wrote something about Leicester City. Okay. Um, so, yeah, look out for that. Well, hardest working man in the blog business. Uh, and uh, Paul, you can find on Twitter at Posin in My Pants and read his blog when he does it. Hello, thanks, Paul. The laziest working man in the blog business. Yeah, thanks, that- guys. That's where the bed sores come from. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Please do. Uh, please leave us a review on iTunes. And those of you who have, we really thank you and appreciate it. And I don't care how nasty you are about me as long as you say nice things about Tim and Paul and the pod. Uh, as always, we uh, really appreciate you wasting the time to listen to this podcast. In any case, uh, up the arsenal. Let's finish second next weekend. That would be great. And uh, we'll talk to you then. Cheers. Acast powers some of the world's best podcasts. Here's a show we recommend. In the latest episode of History This Week, we take a closer look at a failed insurrection at the U.S. Capitol building in 1861, when the nation was on the cusp of a civil war. Nearly 160 years later, what can we learn from this moment when democracy was challenged? And check out all our episodes this month as History This Week celebrates Black History Month. Last week, we covered the Greensboro sit-ins that sparked a media firestorm and inspired mass sit-ins across the country. Next week, we travel to Australia and witness Sydney students taking a freedom ride of their own for Aboriginal civil rights. After that, we'll be exploring the origins of jazz. For these stories and more, subscribe to History This Week wherever you listen to podcasts. A cash recommends. <laughs>